0: this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to
1: patient care.
0: Hi, my name is Nick. I'm an integrated cardiothoracic surgery resident at the Cleveland Clinic. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Najim and Dr. Karamlu, who will be walking us through congenital mitral valve disease. Dr. Najim is the Chair of Pediatric and Congenital Heart Surgery at the Cleveland Clinic and a renowned expert in both neonatal, pediatric, and adult congenital heart disease. Dr. Karamlu is a Congenital Heart Surgeon, Director of Research and Education at the Cleveland Clinic, and an amazing educator for the residents here. Dr. Najim, Dr. Karamlu, thank you for your time.
1: Thanks for your invitation. Thank you, Nick.
0: All right, so let's just start off with the case. A 13-year-old female presents to the clinic with dyspnea on exertion, fatigue, loss of appetite. The physical exam is pertinent for signs of pulmonary congestion. A plain chest x-ray demonstrates an enlarged left atrium and prominence of the pulmonary vasculature. An echocardiogram is performed which shows moderate mitral regurgitation, mild tricuspid regurgitation, and left atrial dilation. What are the features that you're looking for on the echocardiogram? And as a primary surgeon, how would you start to characterize this type of lesion?
2: Nick, this is, this is an important question that you're asking about a 13 years old with a, with a mitral valve disease. What runs through my mind as I get presented a case like this, first of all, is how much the impact of that mitral regurgitation on the heart first. And what's my ability in order to repair that valve? because these are gonna play into the final decision-making of when and how are we are gonna proceed with the advice. So if we believe or the echocardiogram shows a chamber dilatation beyond what is acceptable, coupled with symptoms, then you need to fix do something about that. If the chamber dilatation is not associated with symptoms, then you have to make a decision what's your ability to repair that valve or not? Because what you want is preserve the function of that heart before it actually gets into a level that when the symptoms show up, usually it has actually gone into beyond an advanced stage. And we know from the data of the adult side is that when you get into a severe form of regurgitation, even in the absence of symptoms, you need to go and repair these valves because those who get repaired with severe MR, they tend to go back to normal, both heart function and life expectancy compared to those patients who only get operated on only after they get symptoms. So once you start having a degree, substantial degree of regurgitation and chamber dilatation, I think a very serious look at the opportunity for a mitral valve repair should be done. Obviously, Then the next phase comes in. What is the anatomy of the valve? What is the reason for the regurgitation and the ability to repair this valve? And I'm sure Dr. Karimloo could add some insights to how do you actually go and proceed after that?
1: Yeah, I think I totally agree with what Hani just said. So we really have been very prescriptive here with how we approach the mitral valve and just like Carpentier. We really look at it in a segmental fashion. You want to look at the leaflets. As Hani said, you want to assess you know, regurgitation and stenosis. What is the leaflet mobility? Is it prolapsing? Is it restricted? Is it normal? What is the leaflet area? Do you have sufficient leaflet tissue? In babies with complete AV canal defects, for example, we borrow tissue because oftentimes one side of the would-be septated valve is deficient. So the adequacy of the leaflet tissue is important. Then you wanna look at the subvalvar apparatus. Is it a parachute mitral valve? Is it a single papillary muscle? Is there a mitral arcade? Um, these types of things. And then finally, as Honey said, we have to be cognizant of the status of the left ventricle. Is the ventricle dilated and is it central regurgitation from dilation and from a primary ventricular pathology? And what is the function of that ventricle? Because once you repair the regurgitation, the ventricle has to respond by being able to pump an adequate systemic cardiac output. And then the equipoise between stenosis and regurgitation is also critical because if it's both, then it's a little bit more difficult to repair because you can't just have, regurgitation is a little bit easier than, or pure stenosis is a little bit easier than a mixed pathology where you may have to use multiple strategies um, and we'll certainly get to that later.
0: Absolutely, great. So when you're seeing somebody with mitral regurgitation, especially a young child, what are some associated defects that you want to keep in your mind and some conditions that you're considering when you're seeing this kind of lesion, and how does that really affect your investigation and your surgical management?
2: So the first thing you want to know, is this a congenital or an acquired disease to start with? And the, and the most common in, in a child of acquired disease would be rheumatic heart disease. And as Tara was talking about, this is where you get a combination of uh, leaflet pathology as well as subvalvular involvement, heavy subvalvular involvement, sometimes annular involvement. As a matter of fact, it can affect all the portions of the mitral valve, rheumatic heart disease. The congenital part, whether that be a degenerative disease or a cleft in, in the mitral valve, or as Tara was talking about, an arcade mitral valve or a parachute mitral valve or a double orifice mitral valve they are more associated with either a partial AV canal or sometimes a complete AV canal or some sort of of those uh, different types. And this is where it's really important to know what is the origin of the regurgitation because the repair techniques that we use is not like adults. Typically congenital surgeons are not faced with a lot of valve repairs compared to adults because micro valve regurgitation The degenerative and the ischemic or the functional or the rheumatic are so common in the adult side, but they have a fixed anatomy. You have an anterior leaflet that occupies two thirds of the orifice and one third of the annulus. You have a posterior leaflet that occupies two thirds of the annulus and one third of the orifice. This is standard. This is exactly the same and reproducible. And congenital is a different story because this attachment or this proportion between surface of the leaflet versus the attachment is different based on the anatomy and that's why you need to vet out exactly what the anatomy is so we can go into the operating room knowing what you want to do. Echocardiogram is obviously the the cornerstone in that but I think 3D echo is important and that's where you need an advanced imager who would actually show you he or she would show you the regurgitation and you want to know exactly the regurgitation is it at the cleft is it central as Tara was talking about is it annular dilatation is it eccentric is it interiorly directed is it posteriorly directed because all your repair techniques are going to have when you go in as a surgeon you're going to have this in the back of your mind knowing this is a anteriorly Directed JET, which means that the posterior leaflet is restricted, and that's why it is. So it's, it's, all this stuff is important to, to know before you get into the algorithm.
0: Which leads to my next question, Dr. Crumley, So what are some other imaging modalities, you know, such as cardiac catheterizations or cardiac MRIs, do you find that they're useful in somebody with uh, congenital mitral disease?
1: I think that the MRI would be useful in patients where the mitral is associated with a Schoen's pathology if you have shown pathology in a borderline left side i think the mri as we just did a patient recently where we looked at volumes and i know you're very familiar with that assessing the volumetric capacity of that left side or the right side if you've got a cctga type is important to use the mri for volumes i don't think the mri is helpful to really assess the valvular anatomy per se Cardiac catheterization, I think, can be helpful if you're worried about pulmonary hypertension. It can also give you some data about the adequacy of the left side, but really that's going to be helpful for you to understand what is the PDR and whether or not the mitral stenosis is in some ways going to leave you with a big problem later on.
0: Understood. In this particular patient, the echo demonstrated potentially a cleft in the posterior leaflet, as we know is pretty rare, as well as a central jet from annular dilation. So, how would you assess whether this patient should undergo medical therapy versus surgery? I know you touched on it a little bit, but please elaborate.
2: So the presence of symptoms is an indication. Once you have a clear symptom presence, that means you need to do something. In the absence of symptoms, then you need to look at chamber dilatation and the need to do this. If you start ever having the secondary effect of severe mitral regurgitation, which is either atrial arrhythmias primary hypertension, you need to interfere before you get that, because once you have these, you've actually changed the track of those patients. Now, when at 13 years old, it's rare to have atrial arrhythmias in, in younger people. It can usually happen in older, but you can have primary hypertension, and you need to make sure that the PA pressure is not elevated, even in the absence of symptoms. And believe it or not, Patients will adjust their activities based on their mitral disease in a way that they would come to you and saying that we don't have any symptoms, but you could actually see pulmonary hypertension there, especially with rheumatic heart disease if they are, they've are got stenosis. So, chamber dilatation, pulmonary hypertension, atrial fibrillation in older people would be indications to go in even in the absence of symptoms.
1: Yeah, and I think one thing to add is provocative testing. So in a patient where the gradient may be, mm, is it really stenosis, you know, what's going on? Then I think you need to do either a dobutamine stress echo or some type of exercise stress test. So you could see whether you can provoke a gradient through that mitral valve. So I think that's another thing that you could think about doing if somehow there was, you know, equipoise between whether you
2: go in or not. Absolutely. So sometimes you feel surprised with a mean gradient that jumps from five or six, which is like really borderline, right. to 20, right. 23 yeah. with exercise. Mm. So it's gradients, as you know, is all flow related.
0: Well, great. You know, after multidisciplinary discussions, the decision was made to kind of proceed with the mitral valve repair. So, how would you conduct your operation for this patient, and what are some of the anatomic considerations?
2: So if it's an isolated mitral valve disease, my preferred approach is a lift atrial approach. I know there are people who would go through the septum. That's another, another way of going it through the atrial septum. And another way of having a superior mitral approach, just to mention the approaches to the mitral valve. So you have a superior mitral approach, lift atrial approach, and a transeptal approach. All of these are possible. Why I like, a lift atrial approach in front of the right-sided prominent veins is because I would be looking at the valve without distortion. You want to be as far away from the valve as possible. So when you are actually retracting the tissues to look at the mitral valve, you're not distorting it so you're able to do a proper repair. To optimize the exposure, mobilization of the SVC and IVC is imperative in those patients as well as pulling out the pericardium on the right side to the sternum to allow the heart to shift or twist to the left side to your exposure. You cannot repair a valve without a good exposure. This is imperative for every surgeon. you got to be able to see the valve in all its entirety to you're able to do the repair well, unless you're actually just doing a posterior anoplasty and getting out because of the function of MR. But otherwise, you need to expose the mitral valve well and be away from the distortion. So this is the approach and you've got to put in the back of your mind, what is the pathology and what did the echo show? And also take the opportunity to look at the TEE that is done for us just prior to the operation while the patient is asleep. Yes, the MR is usually less, but it gives you a lot of information about what is, because typically in kids in particular, we don't do a TEE before because it needs to sedation and. And probably anesthesia. So take the opportunity to look and analyze what are the findings of the TEE in the operating room before the patient is opened.
1: Yeah, I I think that's true. And Hani is really a master at sort of setting this case up. I think the other thing is make sure that you're not slinging up the pericardium on the left side so much. You want that heart to fall down so you can see the valve. I think that's a common mistake. Sometimes people that are starting out with mitral surgery. The other thing I think it's really important to know exactly what the Z zero for that valve is and what are you willing to to accept? I think that is another important lesson for you as a surgeon to think to yourself, what will I come out of the operating room most likely and what type of regurgitation and gradient will I accept? Because in the back of your mind, you're always thinking what's the repairability versus the replacement status and you wanna avoid replacement in children as we know for, for lots of reasons. So in that case, you have to be a little bit careful when you're judging, you know, okay, am I gonna accept this or not? Can I come back another day if I have a little bit more regurge than I would like, but this is gonna last this patient through puberty, childbearing ages, et cetera. So I think it's important to have sort of that timeline in your mind um, and the anatomic considerations of the size of the valve for that particular patient. So I think that's sort of the approach I agree with Hani. I like the left atrial approach of going through the septum always seem like you're creating another lesion that then you have to fix. Does that lead to more atrial arrhythmias? Who knows? But you don't want to make more atrial incisions than you otherwise would need to. Sure. I think your bypass and your cannulation strategy is important. You know, are you gonna, in an older patient, are you gonna give retrograde cardioplegia plus antigrade cardioplegia? All these things you need to think through. In kids, obviously, we don't usually give retrograde, but a 13 years old or an adolescent, you might think about potentially doing that for myocardial protection. Um, So I think it's important when you're a resident to think about those things.
0: Great. What if you find a prolapsed or degenerative leaflet? So how would you go about fixing that
2: specifically? I think one of the important strategies in repairing mitral valve is spending the first five, maybe 10 minutes in just evaluating what is the problem, so you know your images what, what there is, but you need to actually start picking. The first thing is you pick up two forceps uh, or an air fork, depends on the size, and start actually seeing the leaflet mobility, testing it, making sure does it actually prolapse, so the height of the uh, leaflet leading edge, is it actually above or below the annulus, and the mobility of the papillary muscles. This is an area that I found actually in recent years, even in my practice, to be honest, that hasn't been addressed a lot before, is examining the papillary muscles in kids is really important. We tend to assume that papillary muscles are papillary muscles, but the reality is there are a lot that actually can go wrong also in the formation of papillary muscles, specifically in congenital mitral valve disease. And one of those that I found is is a major problem the restriction of the posterior leaflet whether that be in av canals or even in in normally formed mitral valves is that not necessarily because of a malformed leaflet or cordi. it is actually a papillary muscle that is tethered with a lot of muscle attachment to the free wall of the muscle and we i end up actually lifting up that papillary muscle and allowing it to free up from the posterior wall so you can it actually rises up and can you can actually uh, have the, the two leaflets come together. So evaluate all the components of the mitral valve. You need to look at the course, you need to look at the papillary muscle and leaflets and the annulus. Look at the commissures, define where the anatomy is and where are you gonna and also very important strategically when you start repairing a valve, you want to go from inside out rather than from outside end. You don't wanna put an anuloplasty suture at the beginning because that, that's gonna actually hinder your exposure on the inside. You know that you're gonna do it, but do it as you come out. So start working with the papillary muscles, optimize the mobility, make sure that this is fine. Then you start looking at the cords if you may need to shorten them. Sometimes shortening the papillary muscle works, and I would like this in kits rather than putting artificial cords. Although I have put in cords today, I've done one, as a matter of fact, if it's, if it's totally ruptured. Having said that, if you just need a little bit of uh, just shortening the papillary muscle, it's easy. You just fold it onto the papillary muscle, a cord on the papillary muscle. It's very easy. And then you work towards the leaflet, and then you look at the commissure, and then you look at the annulus. Great. So, Dr. Kramla, let's say
0: we we did a great repair, or how we feel is a great repair. (laughs) While you're in the operating room, how do you test your repair and judge whether it actually is doing the thing that we want it to do?
1: So, I think one of the things that, um, again, I've learned this from Hani, that when you test the valve, we always say static testing... A lot of people, and I did this too, I mean, this is how I was trained, you know, you stick that bulb syringe in and you stick it through the valve into the ventricle. Don't do that, especially in kids. Just take the syringe and actually direct the jet at the valve itself. It'll pressurize the ventricle, but it's not going to distort that valve. So I think it's important the way you static test the valve. Don't put your bulb syringe all the way into the ventricle and blow it up and then Classic thing shoots off backwards and you know your system yeah. gets wet or whatnot so be elegant in your in your testing of the valve this gets back to what i talked about in the beginning what are you going to accept have that in the back of your mind so static test the valve and then ultimately one always anxiety provoking thing about valve repairs is you'll never know until you come off the pump right? Everything else we can sort of assess before we come off, but valve repairs, you have to come off the heart lung machine. You have to get a pressure that's an adequate pressure. I am very careful about not letting the pressure get high in mitral valves and anesthesiologists, you, you have to take control of that situation and let the pressure go up and in a delicate valve an infant valve, those things will, will um, mess up your repair. So be cognizant of the hemodynamics when you come off, make sure they're normal, but not too high. And then if you muff, be careful when you muff, and center's where you muff, um, because that can also pressurize that, and you may not want to do that in AV canal repairs. Gotcha.
2: And that's why, if I may add, to Tara, I fully agree with her statement, mm. in, in a case which is you really worried about your sutures, yeah. add an LA line. Why Why? you do because this is what it is you not that 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 because then they have another way of actually making sure if they want to give volume and that's what you worry about yeah is volume distinction after a delicate mitral valve repair you don't want them to actually give so when you give them the LA pressure LA light then they would know that the patient is is preloaded well you don't need to give volume if pressures are soft the first thing they're gonna do is just pump in fluid. Maybe no, if the LA pressure is actually adequate and there's good preloading, what you need to go is more with anotropes, not with with volume. And that's where the delicate post-operative care is important is to give them and allow them, give this huddle transfer or knowledge transfer from the surgical operation and findings into the ICU becomes really important in the durability of, of, of your repair.
1: And I think the other thing to add to that is, as a surgeon, become an expert echocardiographer as a congenital surgeon. Learn what they think that they know because they will have the nyquist limit way up and then your regurgitation will look worse. Or, again, what can you fix? There may be a jet of regurgitation, but it may be a double orifice valve and you've closed off one orifice. You've gotta leave the secondary larger orifice there, otherwise you'll get stenosis look at the rest of the pathology. Is a little bit more stenosis better in this particular patient or is a little bit more regurgitation better in this particular patient? So I think you have to make sure that you don't just listen blindly to the cardiologist. Know what they know, interpret the echo yourself. Can I fix this? Can I make it better? And if I make it better and get the converse, Will that be worse for this
2: patient sure and I, you may actually will ask this question but let me uh, preempt this because this is in follow-up to what tara was talking no. about so what goes through your mind when you actually call the cardiologists what are the findings that is going to make me go back totally. to on pump yeah. okay because they don't know they're not, they were not with you in surgery. And you know exactly what you've done. You spent the last 45 minutes, one hour repairing that bath. What you wanna know is what are the things that will actually make me really worry that I need to go back. And you have to know also where you started and what are you ending up with, okay? So a patient who was in cardiogenic shock with severe MR, you know that you want a survivable lesion. Because right. you wanna get out that this patient is gonna to survive to come back to you is okay right. for a second repair and possibly a replacement because now it's like, it's not truly a salvage, but it's very close to that. So you're not looking for perfection. While if you're going in for a an elective of defect or a cleft, you wanna actually get as best a repair as possible with minimal, if ever, an illegal, or trivial leak. So that you've got one in between, you've got a, a perfect repair, you've got a survivable repair, and you know, and you have got an in between also. Factor which actually Tara was talking about, very important, is when are you going to accept? If you close the valve, there'll be no regurg. You yeah. know that. <laughs> That's the ultimate, <laughs> the ultimate best, yeah, repair. That, <laughs> the best repair. You got zero <laughs> regurg, but you <laughs> got zero flow also. <laughs> okay. How much can you accept in terms of a residual gradient versus residual regurgitation? The worst you can do is have more than moderate MR or MS together. So you have to err in difficult valves where you're not planning to replace because of age or because of other conditions you don't want to replace in a growing child. Then you have to balance how much you actually want to minimize the leak without causing a gradient that is high or you want to say well I'm gonna accept this if I'm gonna get actually just moderate MS and no MR I'll take that but if I'm gonna get moderate MR moderate MS no yeah. that is gonna hunt you back because they're not gonna do well at the ICU Got gotcha
0: that, that, that actually is a nice segue to my next question so What's the role of mitral valve replacement in patients like this? Is is there a role in in
1: Yes. I mean, you can't, you should never be the surgeon that says, I never replace a valve because that's the case where you'll go in and replace the valve. Um, So I think that type of hubris should be avoided. And as congenital surgeons, we know that our patients are never cured. They are treated or they are repaired. Um, So we have to be careful in how we counsel patients. Most patients we know that have, complete canals, 20% of them are going to come back for valve replacements or reinterventions. So there is a role for valve replacement. I think we know that if you, like Connie said, if you're going to come out of the operating room with something that that child will not get extubated, having that LA line is critical to know that. If you're not going to be able to extubate that child because the LA pressure is too high, you have to replace the valve or you have to re-repair it. But As a surgeon, there's only so much you can do to repair. We've talked about that already. So I think in situations where the patient's not going to thrive, can't get extubated, the LA pressure is prohibitive, go in and replace the valve. Honey, what do you think?
2: I think that's absolutely correct. And if you have an LA pressure of 20, you know that this patient is not going to get off the ventilator. Okay, and that's your biggest problem, is it going to be congested all the time. If you have a pressure of 15 and less, the chances that you can actually optimizing everything if you have a good function, that this is a survivable lesion and you can actually still extubate the kid even with that LA pressure. So this is where you need to factor in all the situation. T- Obviously the annulus size is really important. So if you have a small annulus size, you get no option of replacement. Yeah. So if you have a, an alias which is 11, like the patient we had today is 11 or 12 millimeters, you have no option of replacement. Your best way of just getting a survivable repair that you can come back to when the annulus is gonna be actually 16 or 17 millimeters or two centimeters, so you can have the option of replacement if you don't wanna do a second repair. Perfect.
1: Yeah, and also the function of the ventricle. Sure. If the ventricle isn't very good, you don't wanna spend a lot of time.
2: Absolutely, no. and that's, I fully agree. That's, you, no. you gotta make sure also that heart is going to stand a second ischemic run. Exactly. Yeah, perfect.
0: Post-operatively, what are the some of the nuances of post-operative care, and what, what are the results that you kind of expect?
1: Well, we talked about the LA line. I think, again, I think that's a critical part of it. I really think that's helpful in understanding how to manage the patient with volume, blood pressure control, critical pacing. If you're not in sinus rhythm, if you had to do a maze, you want to make sure that you've got AV synchrony. You don't want to be V-pacing a patient that you replaced a valve and repaired a valve in. So I think attention to hemodynamics, looking at the intracardiac pressures is really key. And then extubation tells it all with left-sided valve disease. You can get that patient extubated, even if it takes a little bit of time. Judicious fluid management and diuretic therapy is critical. Always know your eyes, nose, your weights. Be really a lieutenant with these types of patients.
0: Perfect, perfect. And then, again, what kind of results do you expect for these patients in the long run?
1: at the clinic, excellent. <laughs> um, you know, nothing but the best. <laughs> yeah, nothing but the world-class care. I know, in, in all seriousness, I think we have to approach it with the lens that the longer you have a person at risk, if you're doing a neonatal something, the chances are that they're going to come back. If you're doing a 19-year-old, 30 years old they have a much shorter at-risk interval, and I think they can tolerate things physiologically much better. Concomitant lesions... Is it in a canal, in a Shone's, a connective tissue? So you have to frame the results in the context of other anatomic abnormalities. But we know 20% are going to come back. If it's a Shone's type variant, most likely you're going to come back for another reintervention, um, and it may not just be on the mitral valve; it may be on, you know, the subaortic area, the aortic valve. Um, so I think those are really important in the durability of your repair too.
2: So I a quotation from my mentor, Bill Williams, who said, as a congenital surgeon, all your patients will come back. It all depends on how long you follow them up. Sure. As a matter of fact, there are still cases sure. that we think that they're never going to come back to us. We just haven't followed them long enough. Sure. What's going to happen 50 years from now or 50 years from a surgery? Some of the surgeries have been invented only 10 years ago. We don't even have a long-term follow-up on it. So it all depends on the follow-up.
0: Great. Well, that was fantastic. Before we end, any closing thoughts or?
1: I think what I would say is that congenital mitral pathology is it's a mixed bag. And as Hani said, you have to be prepared to deal with all of the, the full spectrum from something simple as an anterior cleft, something way more complicated, like, a, you know, a Schoen's mitral valve that's got, a, you know, a arcade, a single papillary muscle, a parachute, plus a small annulus. We didn't really talk about EFE, but that's another component of that. Mm-hmm. We've learned a lot from cone repairs about delaminating those valves and how to bring those leaflets away from the ventricular muscle mass. So I think we're learning a lot of surgeons about um, how to treat valve disease, and you know that's exciting, but you gotta be very well prepared.
2: Great. I agree with all what Tara was talking about, and I would add that they should never be lost to follow. Yeah. They always should be followed by a cardiologist, Afterload reduction is imperative, early specifically after surgery. If you have trivial or less than mild MR, then it's okay if they don't want to actually give them any afterload reduction. But anything more than that, you have, they have to have afterload reduction for preservation of the ventricular function. And they need to be followed up lifelong. Yeah.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you, Dr. Najim, and thank you, thank you Dr. Krummou, for thank you a wonderful coming. discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nick. Pleasure. you.